This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Bill Suo about his new book, Constructing Empire, the Japanese in Changchun, 1905-1945, published by the University of British Columbia Press in 2019. So, Dr. Suo, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So um, I wonder if you began the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies and particularly in modern Japan and modern China. Well, I'm going to end up dating myself, I suppose, because I started off in, uh, with an interest in Russian history and language. And back then, it was uh, the Cold War was a little uh, hotter, as it were. Um, and so I was studying that. But... Russian history is really kind of depressing after a while. Stalin gets into power and uh, it's just, just one bad thing after another. And I finished university uh, in 1982 and I was taking a class in modern Chinese history with uh, Maurice Meisner at, at Wisconsin. And um, there was this new guy on the on the field, Deng Xiaoping, and I, things seemed interesting there. So I switched to my MA in, in, in modern Chinese history. And uh, while there... I got a job that brought me to um, uh, China's northeast, uh, the area, something used to be called Manchuria. And then I lived there for a while and, and traveled a bit and decided that, oh man, doing research in China um, uh, might be challenging. And after some time off, I came back with a PhD and switched to um, uh, modern Japanese history. Oh, thank you. And where did you uh, live in northeast China? I was, well, I was... <laughs> The job had me on the uh, the banks of the Amur River of the Heilongjiang, and we were affiliated with a company in Jiangsu. Um, but I was on the river um, looking at um, Chinese living on the south side and on the north side. At the time, no uh, no Soviet citizens were allowed to live within five kilometers of the river, so all you saw on that side were um, uh, Soviet tanks, kind of buried up to their turrets. Oh, very interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, so before we dig into the book, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write uh, this book, Constructing Empire? So what led you to take on this topic? It began actually with that um, with that job, because after the work was over, I drove, I was a, a passenger on a, on a big freight truck uh, from Jiangsu to Beijing. And we drove through all kinds of areas that hadn't opened yet. And so I, was, I had to hide my face at times. Uh, but we ended up driving through the city of Changchun. 
And I remember, you know, one town after another looked more or less the same. And then we drove through this town and it had really different architecture and it was kind of stunning. And uh, the, the, the truck drivers could tell me some um, things, but not much. And so I kind of filed that away in the back of my mind. And then when it came time to do the dissertation, I was trying to think of, okay, what are some topics I can dig into that would be interesting yet somewhat finite so I don't, of course, get lost in digressions. And so I thought of the city, and so I thought I'd dig into that. And, of course, um, no matter what the topic is, there's all kinds of, <laughs> of interesting niches to explore. And so it ended up taking a lot longer than I expected. Great. Um, and right, again, for those of our listeners who might not be very familiar with the modern history of Manchuria and the city of Chantran, um, can you maybe give us a really brief introduction on the city and where it is and its place in also the geopolitics of really 20th century Northeast Asia? Yeah, sure. Uh, Manchuria um, is a name that was commonly used before the war. Uh, and has somewhat come back, I guess, amongst historians and other academics. Uh, the Chinese just call the area the Northeast because they're talking about the northeastern three provinces of China. And to call it Manchuria is sometimes um, uh, anathema because it seems as if you're talking about an independent region from China's perspective. You, you don't want that. It's just part of China. Uh, so we're talking about the area that is northeast of Beijing, so north and east of the Great Wall of China. It's that part of, it, of China that's situated between uh, Mongolia, uh, the Russian Far East, and Korea. And it, it, it covers quite a large expanse of land. Um, goes from the Amur River all the way down to uh, the city of Dalian and, and the Liaodong Peninsula. Um, so it's, 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 a, it's a big piece of real estate that became quite contested in the 20th century because at the start of the 20th century, it was not well populated. Um, the Manchus had, of course, left the area in, in great masses in order to rule China when they conquered China in 1644. And they tried to keep their homeland free of, 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 of foreigners. And so come the 20th century uh, with... Um, lots of population density growing in Korea and uh, China and Japan. Uh, this became terrain that uh, many people looked to, and it became kind of a uh, contested space amongst Chinese, Koreans, Japanese. Uh, and there were also, of course, Soviet interests in the, in the or Russian interests and later Soviet interests in the region as well. Foreign imperialists from Europe and the United States are also interested in it in terms of uh, developing it for their own interests. So it's a it's a really interesting part of the world to study because there's just so much going on and so much interest uh, in it that results in a number of rivalries and uh, conflicting views. Yeah, um, I mean, Owen Latimore uh, wrote this book, Ramantria, the Cradle of Conflict. So um, that also tells a, a little bit about sort of the views of the region. Yeah, that's just he's just one of many authors who wrote about that area at that time because uh, he wrote in the 30s. Uh, there's another one that's uh, calls Manchuria the cockpit of Asia or something like that. So your book mostly focuses on civilian contributions um, to the construction of empire in Chantrin, and um, you argue that studies on the Japanese Empire often focus on elite decisions or actions, uh, but the popular dimension must also be considered to fully grasp um, empire's nature. So can you tell us a little bit more about why centering the popular dimensions of empire making is crucial here, especially in the case of Manchukuo? 
Yeah, sure. The the great man approach to history is one that should be <laughs> um, put aside. And, and and I'm not alone in saying that, of course, the profession, uh, the discipline of history has uh, lots of explorations of, of new and different angles. But in most of the books until recently focused on, you know, the, this, this, this influential um, uh, man approach to history. So uh, many of the books initially looked at uh, the trial, the trials and travails of Henry Puyi, the last emperor, or of Ishiwara Kanji, um, uh, you know, one of the founders or the organizers of the Manchurian incident that resulted in Japan's takeover of the region. Um, and those kinds of perspectives. Others looked at diplomats and, and other, you know, main big figures. And, and in recent years or, or couple decades, I guess, has been a growing interest in trying to undercover, uncover what average citizens did and how they were involved. And so uh, in Japanese, there's a few books. Uh, Okabe Michio is perhaps the first um, that I'm aware of. Uh, but more recently in English, we have works by uh, Louise Young and Sandra Wilson and uh, Imer O'Dwyer uh, in particular that, that focus on the roles of, of civilians in, in Japan and Manchuria. Uh, that discuss their roles. Speaking more broadly, though, it's also important because if you just look at the the people at the top, uh, it's easy to put the blame only on them. And then the responsibility for building empires uh, can be dismissed as a, on, on, by labeling it or by blaming a few rogue figures. Uh, if you think about it from the societal point of view, then the responsibilities are much more broadly shared and have repercussions for the for the post-colonial era yes definitely and just like it was a, a total war it was also a total empire right, in louis Yan's uh, works um and chapter one of the book city planning um now we're going to the meat of the book um so this this chapter looks at how the japanese built uh two different urban environments in chantran so one as a railway town designed and maintained by Montetsu or the south uh, material railway Personnel and another one as an imperial capital, which was jointly planned by the Mentatu and the Kanton army. Uh, so why was the city designed in such a way? And what does this tell us about the Japanese colonial projects in Manchuria? Well, it tells us several things. Uh, I divide it in two periods because there are two very distinct periods in one respect. Uh, but in a second respect that I'll get into in a few minutes, it's, it's essentially just one period. In, in the first respect, uh, the Japanese arrive in 1907, having uh, defeated the Russians in the Russo-Japanese War in 1904-05. And starting in 1907, they start to build a uh, interior treaty port um, modeled on the treaty ports elsewhere in China. Uh, the most famous one, of course, is in Shanghai. But there are, of course, treaty ports in Tianjin and other places across China. And the Japanese had built a, a couple of others previous in, in Korea and, and Taiwan. So this was not entirely a novel experience. But once they start to build this treaty port, they make it much in line with what you see in other treaty ports in, in China and Taiwan and, and Korea, uh, with a certain approach to urban planning, architecture, um, electricity, services, these kinds of things. And they're modeling their program on what the Europeans had done uh, who were there earlier. And so in this respect, Changchun as a, as a treaty port is much like other uh, treaty ports. And so the Japanese are sharing in this kind of imperialist exploitation of, of, of China. After the Manchurian incident of September 18th, 1931, uh, the Japanese avowedly 
seek to create a grandiose imperial capital that is going to uh, lead Manchuria or the new puppet state of Manchukuo, as, as it came to be called, into a new era. And so they wanted something that was more appropriate. And so you get this grandiose architecture, you get these uh, huge, broad boulevards that are lined with trees, you have large parks, you have um, power lines that are buried because they're deemed uh, to be unsightful. Uh, you have um, wireless radio, you have an airport, you have a horse racetrack, uh, you have all the things to make the city you know, modern and grand, which is very different from the treaty port uh, town that had been there before. And this, this new capital is located just uh, just south of the treaty port, so it's it's connected. There are streets connecting it, but it's a, it's a very different uh, cityscape uh, in terms of nature and, and size. The capital is, is much, much uh, larger. Now, the one way it's not different, though, is that both are designed, I think, to show Japanese authority and power. The first as a as a as a colonial power, and in the second stage as a Japan, the, the leader and liberator of Asia, to use their uh, their perspective, uh, to take China and uh, well, Manchuria and then, and later China and the rest of East Asia into a new into a new era. Um, and I don't think it succeeds, um, which we can get into perhaps more when we talk about the next chapter. But in terms of urban planning, it's uh, the the nature of using. Uh, some Chinese tradition to harken back to that um, uh, that wisdom in, in terms of locating the palace in a certain place and um, new temples in, in certain areas um, is not as central and authentic as it was, say, in Beijing, in which they got their ideas from. So it's more uh, it remains the Japanese remain more committed to building a modern and intimidating uh, city, I think, than than the grandiose uh, Pan-Asian capital that they were allegedly aspiring to build. Mm, that's very interesting. Um, so speaking of architectures and, and um, I guess, the infrastructures of the city planning, the second chapter, Imperialist Imperial Facades, um, which is the title, um, really digs into these tangible expressions of Japanese colonial architecture discourses. Um, so what does the architectures in Changchun and these different facades reveal about the empire? Well, in the treaty port, the architecture is more or less like what you see in other parts of treaty port China. And in fact, the architectural style that they use, um, historical eclecticism, is based upon the European precedent. And the Japanese embrace it because this is a modern style. And so they're, they are building a, a town that is the equal of that of the other imperialists. And so it fits into that first era. Uh, the architecture of that era uh, demonstrates this quite nicely. Uh, in the second era, uh, after the Manchurian incident, the architecture is, is not only larger and grander, but they try to uh, make it more Asian-inspired by putting Asian roof lines and other kind of Asian decorations on some of the buildings and to try and show a blending of East and West and in so show off Japanese ingenuity. And this is particularly associated with uh, the government structures in, in this cap the capital of, uh, of Manchukuo, which is uh, Changchun, renamed as uh, Xinjiang, uh, new capital. And these capital buildings um, are arranged in a stately manner on, on one boulevard, um, but then they're large, they're sprawling, they have um, interesting roof lines, 
Um, but they don't really appear anywhere else. And so back to my other point, how things remain the same, there's a larger commitment to modernity. And so there's an imposing bank, uh, for example, and an imposing uh, structure for the telephone and telegraph company um, and, and other buildings that are not built in this Pan-Asian style. And so there's, again, a facade of this uh, imperial uh, grand, grandeur for Manchukuo but most Japanese structures continue to be built in the modern international style that's common around the world in the 1930s. And I, I think there's a, a greater uh, focus on that, despite all the adulation in the journals uh, and the newspapers to this, this new style that's supposedly leading Manchukuo and, and, and quote-unquote Manchurians into a new era. And as a uh, propaganda piece, Xin uh, Jing uh, appeared to assert Japanese uh, superiority and, and authority in a number of ways, uh, including even a couple of buildings with uh, uh, Japanese architectural motifs uh, on them. But I think most fundamentally, the city uh, evidenced a, a commitment more to a continuing modernity uh, because they tried to make the city as modern as possible. And so that meant large parks and, in fact, on a per capita ratio, uh, much greater than any other place in, in, in Asia and on a par with um, the parks in Europe or in North America, as uh, their statisticians figured out. They also tried to make the city more beautiful by reducing the unsightliness of modern cities, such as power lines. So by law, all power lines were going to be buried instead of you know, marring the cityscape, as you often see in in, in, in many cities today. The city was also um, given a modern infrastructure in terms of water, sanitation, and these kinds of things. Um, and then, of course, much of the architecture outside of the official architecture continued to be in the more modern styles you were seeing around the world. So to, despite this kind of Asian uh, superficial surface to the city, uh, in many ways it was remained a more modern city. And by that, the Japanese were trying to say that this, this city was going to be a modern capital for this new, uh, this fictitious country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And in the architectures, um, are they also exhibiting some kind of uh, imagination? Right? You, you talk about the imaginary quite a lot in the book, uh, and sort of kind of imagination or orientalism right, towards these pan-Asian structures, but also a kind of um, imagination towards Western styles? Yeah, the, in terms of an, imagine, of, a, of an imaginary, what I was trying to get at there was how these structures you know, dovetailed with other aspects of the Japanese empire at the time, in particular, the idea of Pan-Asianism, that all Asians could be brought together as one large you know, family, so to speak, under the leadership of, of Japan in order to uh, carve out a, a, a new path in the world uh, against the, uh, the imperialist powers. 
And so this new kind of architecture uh, fits into that uh, discourse quite nicely. And you see it celebrated, of course, by the architects themselves as lots of um, uh, journal articles and newspaper articles written at the time uh, and speeches made that, um, that, that obviously make all these linkages. Uh, but, um, uh, but you see it broader. You see it in postage stamps. You see it in other forms of government publications. You see it in, in the, the money that circulated at the time. Uh, but you also see it amongst civilian uh, ideologues who are writing their own books and their own uh, perspectives, um, which are also you know, celebrating these ideals. Um, so chapter three turns to the um, economic developments in Manchuria and the city of Changchun. And here you not only address how the Japanese integrated the town's economy into the empires, but also uh, reminds us that Changchun actually had already been a really key regional trade hub in the Qing Empire before the arrival of foreign empire builders. So what's the difference about the economic expansion centered on the city um, under the Japanese empire? I included the section before the 20th century because I wanted to show that the Japanese did not build anything from scratch, uh, which is what you get the sense from reading some of the Japanese books on this era. And so there is, of course, uh, long-standing uh, trade patterns. I mean, granted, sure, Manchuria was not densely inhabited, but it was inhabited in, in, uh, before the 20th century. And, and so you have these long-distance patterns of trade in, in sable and, and ginseng and, and, and lumber. And the beginnings of uh, other certain kinds of agricultural products, in particular soy. And so you see the soy trade um, is, is especially pick up for fertilizers in, in China and even Southeast Asia. And so you have those patterns that the Japanese are able to exploit even more so once they come into the region in 1907. And they aid all of these, but especially soy, by building experimental farms to experiment with new soy varietals in order to increase production by providing a, uh, a growing railway infrastructure in order to transport the goods, uh, in order to bring, and also to bring uh, banking and other kinds of financial services in order to help really grow this trade, particularly for Japan's benefit, of course. Uh, but it also lures, has the effect of luring in lots of Chinese settlers to the region in order to uh, help expand. And so it's, 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 it's it's a cycle that is mutually supportive in order to attract even more Chinese uh, who are, um, of course, living in increasingly dense, densely settled regions in China south of the Great Wall. Uh, so the Japanese initial response is to really expand all the agricultural uh, systems and other and, and, and earlier systems, so not so much sable because that's, uh, that's, not, that, that's a, a dying commodity. Uh, but especially soy. And it's, of course, in the early 20th century that the Japanese diet becomes uh, even more um, balanced on soy, uh, tofu and soy sauce and these kinds of things were, were not as common in the Japanese diet before the 20th century. And uh, uh, Japanese soy pro or Manchurian soy products uh, come to help support a, a growing industrializing workforce in Japan, as well as help support Japanese investments because soy is then exported around the world. And this is when the whole world begins turned on to soy and its, and its potential uses. And uh, there's an article by, um, oh, I can't think of his name at the moment, uh, it talks about how the importance of soy was, uh, how Manchurian soy was, uh, uh, was something like three quarters of the, of the soy that could be found around the world in the early 20th century or mid, yeah, yeah first, first third of the 20th century. So, the, so in the first stage, um, the Japanese really encouraged all that kind of growth, uh, economic growth. And in the second stage, after the Manchurian incident, 
the Japanese start to develop Manchuria as a partner for industrial development. So having factories and, and production that would benefit Japanese industries in order to prepare for a, a more heavily industrialized society uh, in order to compete internationally and to prepare for war. Uh, the plans for Xinjiang, however, have differed from those of other cities in Manchukuo. Um, instead of a large industrial infrastructure, uh, the planners wanted this new capital city to be um, kind of a city on a hill. And so to that, there was no industrial infrastructure initially planned. It was going to be a capital city with uh, beautiful boulevards and lots of parks and trees. It was going to have this new kind of hybrid uh, architecture, uh, hybridizing Asian and uh, uh, European forms, uh, thereby kind of symbolizing a superiority, I think, to the to the rest of uh, to the rest of the world, uh, and serve as kind of a propaganda piece for um, uh, for the puppet state. In terms of industrial infrastructure, they tried to keep that to a minimum, and it wasn't until later when they realized they really needed to have some. Uh, they did allow some light industry in the far northeast corner of the city, uh, where the prevailing winds would uh, blow any smoke or, or, or vapors away. Another issue, perhaps, in keeping industrial infrastructure to a minimum was to reduce the potential for any uh, rioting or rebellion amongst any uh, laboring classes in the city. Thank you for explaining that. It's very interesting. Um, and chapter four, uh, going to um, the societal kind of dimensions of the city, um, this chapter is entitled Colonial Society. Here you remind us that the population of Manchuria actually exploded from at only around 40 million in 1900 to 43 million in 1940 um, uh, under the construction of Manchukuo. And the population of the region basically tripled in just 40 years. So what did this dramatic change in demography do to the residential arrangements um, and the city arrangements uh, in Changchun? Well, the city grows pretty quickly as a, uh, from, a, from a railway um, uh, inland port to a, uh, a quote-unquote imperial capital. So yeah, the population um, increased dramatically over the, over the first half of the 20th century. In Changchun or Xinjiang, as it became after 1931, uh, there was almost there was over 100,000 Japanese by 1940, and altogether there was more more than a million Japanese in Manchuria by 1940. And the number, and that's just the civilians. That doesn't include all the, the soldiers and other people who were who were there. So this is a, a large number of Japanese who are coming, but the number of Chinese who are coming are even in, in larger numbers. Uh, because uh, most of that growth was amongst Chinese looking for work uh, in order to either supplement their incomes uh, and, and sojourn uh, for a few years in Manchuria and then going back home where it's uh, warmer and uh, where their families were. Um, but it's not just Chinese and Japanese who are coming to this region. There's also a large number of Koreans who started coming to Manchuria initially just right across uh, the border into uh, eastern uh, Jilin province or eastern part of Manchuria. Uh, but eventually they continued to expand westward and found niches that they could uh, develop agriculturally as well. There's a smaller population of M Mongolians who um, I think actually decrease in number, but I haven't seen uh, actual statistics on that. But I, I think many of them got pushed out and they, they kind of moved farther to the, to the west and north. And as for the Manchus, they are also in, in, in declining numbers as well. 
so this region it ex- explodes in, in population, um, but it's it's primarily a Chinese settlement. As for Changchun or Xinjiang, uh, it becomes uh, primarily a, a Chinese city because by 1940 there's 360,000 uh, Chinese in the city, as opposed to only 114,000 uh, Japanese. Uh, but they are confined pretty much to just certain sections of the city on the, on the south and east. Uh, all of these new uh, houses and, and apartment blocks that are built along these grand boulevards are pretty much reserved for, for, for Japanese and for um, those uh, Chinese and Koreans who collaborate with them. I mean, there is some Chinese who are able to move into the treaty port, but when it comes to Xinjiang, um, they are kept out of these, uh, of, these, of these newer apartment blocks and buildings. Um, so the result, of course, is that you have an increasing densification of uh, parts of the city, um, which don't get too much uh, development, whereas the other parts of the city that are, that are, uh, are grandiose are, are, and, uh, and celebrated for having a low population density because of parks and other things, they're, they're pretty much enjoyed only by Japanese. And uh, here in this chapter, um, you, you spoke about this local imaginary in Changchun that was formed from really diverse actions uh, within and also concerns for the city uh, on part of its residents. So can you speak a little bit more about this idea of the local imaginary? Well, in this chapter, I was trying to get at what it was like to live in this first railway town and then um, quote-unquote imperial capital. And I I tried a number of ways to get at it, and I found uh, some um, novels, uh, some reports, um, and I I couldn't find much. And what I ended up relying on mostly were were newspapers, in particular the the Manchurian Daily News, uh, the Manchu Nichi Nichi Shinbun. And there was uh, in the in this newspaper there was a weekly report on Changchun, just as there was a weekly report for every other uh, 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 town or city you know, in Manchuria under Japanese uh, uh, administration. And so I looked at a couple of years just to get a sense for what those years were like. Uh, and there's what I came across was uh, lots of reporting on differences in weather, because of course. Um, uh, Changchun is a much colder, um, drier climate than what Japanese are, are used to. I, I included a discussion of what kinds of concerns Japanese had uh, living there, and this included fears of Soviet invasion, fears of Chinese warlord activities, fears of Chinese violence in terms of muggings, theft, arson, these kinds of things. Um, there were, of course, Japanese crimes. They tended to be not violent crimes, um, uh, so things like embezzlement and, and, and those kinds of, of crimes. Um, but then the language that was used, uh, the Japanese tended to, re- or the newspaper tended to resort to language using uh, things like outrage and, <laughs> and uh, assault and, and, you know, and much more blaming uh, or, and critical of the Chinese. And uh, that, that kind of makes sense if they're, if they're a small minority population yet supposedly in control of this much larger population. Uh, and uh, it fits in with what uh, Joshua Fogel and, and others uh, have looked at in other uh, treaty ports where the Japanese are. Uh, so they're, they're, they're anxious. And I was trying to convey those kinds of concerns because this would help explain their support for 
uh, incidents such as the Manchurian incident and eventually a larger war. Yeah, and one of the ways that I guess the Japanese colonialists were trying to deal with this or these fears was um, the building of infrastructures, right, like hospitals, um, schools, and also religious institutions, right? Can you maybe speak a little bit about these um, different things that they were building? Yeah, that's also there in the reports in the newspapers because the the language that the Japanese used to describe their activities in not just Xinjiang but across Manchuria is one of progress. Uh, and in fact, uh, uh, one of the South Manchuria Railway's publications uh, that kept track of, of their efforts is called Reports on Progress. And you have a report on progress for, for a number of years that the Japanese are there. And they call it progress because they are um, they're bringing, they see themselves as bringing civilization to this part of the world, um, which is why I, I think I write in the beginning of the book that the Japanese perceive their activities through a, a civilizational lens because they're bringing uh, infrastructure like hospitals and schools, um, uh, electric power, uh, sanitation, uh, fresh water, uh, all these kinds of concerns, you know, in some respects doing what the British say they're doing elsewhere in the world, but in a, in a much larger way, I think, if you, if you, I think if you compare uh, Japanese uh, imperialist activities to either the French in, in Indochina or the, or the British in India or elsewhere. Uh, so yeah, this this uh, this language of progress they, is something they can affirm and defend, uh, which is also the, the flip side of this of the anxieties that they are living amongst. They are also trying to uh, uh, create something that is, is worth supporting and defending. And how often and how uh, kind of frequent do the other residents of Manchukuo, um, the Chinese, the Korean, and even the Mongols? Um, use these new infrastructure kind of places like hospitals and schools and uh, religious institutions? Yeah, well, there's the rub. Most of these new um, facilities were for Japanese only. There's very few built for the Japanese. And when it comes to hospitals, uh, most of the um, uh, new medical infrastructure I could find was uh, run by, uh, by European missionaries uh, who set up places in, in the older parts of Changchun where the where the Chinese lived? So yeah, these these were these were primarily for Japanese. So the city, in a way, is highly segregated. I guess. Yes, very much so. And I found in trying to find information on especially Chinese lives in this era, which is really difficult. Uh, I went to a number of uh, missionary archives in Europe, and in uh, I went to. Edinburgh and to Belfast in Northern Ireland because there was a Irish Presbyterian missionary presence in Changchun from around the turn of the century and to Paris. And in Paris, I found some reports by some French missionaries that were, that, that described the segregation, um, you know, um, very nicely. And I've got that in the book, how they, how the Japanese are living in this, this modern kind of Asian New York uh, whereas the Chinese are pretty much living as they had been for centuries in thatched roofs, uh, all in the same city. Yeah, so the other side of the story, I guess, is very difficult to, to tell. The majority of the population in this, I guess, metropolis of the empire, um, their stories, how they lived in the city, it's it's not very visible in comparison. Yes, and it's a story that needs to be told. And one of the reasons why it took me so long to get my book out was that I tried for years to find contemporary accounts of how Chinese, Koreans, and others lived in places like, like in, lived in places like Changchun. 
and I just I just couldn't. I mean, the Japanese were really good at censoring newspapers, so you can't find any accounts there, um, which is why I thought I'd try the um, uh, the missionary uh, archives. Um, oral interviews only go so far um, because I tended to get the same answers from a number of, um, of the older Chinese I, I talked to when I was in Changchun and, and other parts of Manchuria. Um, and so it was quite frustrating. Hmm. Speaking of memory, uh, your last chapter of the book actually turns our attention to Manchuria in the immediate post-war years of the Japanese Empire. And here you also talk about how the city and the city uh, living experience was perceived and remembered right, in the post-war by its ex and current residents, uh, both Japanese and, and Chinese. Um, so what was the fate of Changchun uh, right after 1945, first of all? And also, secondly, how was the city kind of remembered in the post-war? It's, uh, well, in terms of the first, your first question, um, Japanese and Chinese in Changchun and, and Koreans, although there, there's, Koreans tended to be more rural than urban, um, faced a number of, of, of calamities, Um First, there is the end of the war itself and the Soviet invasion. Uh, the Japanese initially had planned to retreat to the mountains on the Korean border, which would have meant a, uh, uh, just giving up the cities to Soviet uh, forces. And since the bulk of the Japanese were living in the cities in the central part of Manchuria, they, they decided in the end to actually fight and make um, uh, Xinjiang or, or Changchun as the uh, kind of the defensive pivot because uh, it, it would be like the northwestern pivot of the defensive lines. Um, and so the result, of course, was Soviet bombing runs and eventually uh, armor breakthroughs through the borders and uh, then paratroopers landing in Changchun uh, and, uh, and starting to organize the Japanese surrender. And of course, it happened very fast. Uh, the Japanese were expecting a Soviet invasion. It just was uh, several months before that they, were, uh, they, they anticipated it. Uh, so everyone was caught off guard. And um, there's all kinds of stories, of course, of Japanese trying to, to get to places like Changchun in order to get to the rail lines, in order to escape to um, either a ferry and back to Japan or to get to Korea and escape. Chinese, of course, were, were less concerned about that. And in fact, I found evidence of uh, uprisings in this capital uh, um, at the very end of the war and uh, where some Chinese uh, killed their Japanese officers and raised the flag of rebellion. Um, in the final days of the war. Uh, so they're actually quite, they're quite happy, of course. But then afterwards, Changchun becomes uh, a pawn in the, in the Cold War because eventually it is contested between Chinese communists and Chinese nationalists. And there is a, a brutal uh, battle where Changchun is besieged. You have 100,000 people dead. Um, uh, because of the siege and the, and the communists not allowing any food getting into there. And so when that's over, um, the communists take over and then continue on their march to, uh, uh, to win the civil war. Um, most Japanese by then, but not all, uh, were, were out um, having uh, escaped south just before the, the siege, um, usually to the south uh, and, and then by American ship back to Japan. But a number uh, are stuck uh, in, in Changchun or other parts of Manchuria and don't get back until the early uh, 1950s. But that route home for those who do make it back is difficult because they have to endure uh, cholera, they have to endure um, uh, they have to endure the winter of 1945. Uh, it's impossible to get out. Most don't get out until 1946 and 47. 
And so they have to figure out new ways to survive in the era where your entire system had broken down. There's no more cash. Uh, you're fighting for your survival. There's um, Soviet troops that you're that uh, threaten to kill all the Japanese if there is any attacks against them. Uh, there is the fear of, of rape. There is the fear of uh, Chinese communist guerrillas who do occupy the city before the nationalists get in. Um, there's a lot going on that uh, is quite scarring uh, for, for many Japanese. And that, that's also part of the story because, uh, sure, the, the Japanese remember Chongchun or Xinjiang often with uh, these visions of progress, of the things they did before the war. Um, but those who came back... Um, remember the, the pains and the, and the deaths uh, that occurred in those uh, tragic years from oh, 1945 to 1947 in particular. And then, of course, uh, with some 600,000 Japanese are detained in the Soviet Union uh, for various amounts of time after 1945 until the, uh, through the 50s. Uh, and some of them were taken from uh, Xinjiang street, streets as well. So in terms of the Japanese post-war uh, views uh, well, as I say, some of it is they see the city as a as a, a as a bastion of progress because uh, there are a number of publications into the sixties and seventies even about how what good things that the Japanese were able to accomplish, and of course they don't really uh, discuss it discuss the bad things much. Um, and it's really not until the 1970s that you start to see Japanese uh, criticisms emerge. And I actually have an article. Uh, in a book edited by David Edgington that talks about uh, this is called um, post-war Manchuria in Japan. And when I, I talk about these uh, these post-war views and how uh, it takes a while for criticisms to emerge. And then when they do, uh, when discussions of Unit 731, for example, or which was that medical experimentation and, and chemical and bacteriological warfare experimentation on Chinese up in the city of Harbin, um, Changchun had its own uh, unit. It was Unit 100 that did these kinds of things. Uh, when those come to light, people start to say, well, wait a minute. Some of the things the Japanese did were as, every bit as bad as the Nazis. And so the, the post-war views are quite conflicted. And one of the reasons for focusing this book on civilians is to you know, bring this question to light. I mean, the experience included all of these things. Uh, Japanese could be said in some ways to have done th- some things that were progressive, but they also did things that were you know, barbaric. And so how do we consider the entirety of this experience? Yeah, it's definitely a very complicated issue. And um, so how is the city kind of remembered now in current residents of Changchun? Well, I've last time I was there, I... I, I I, I talked to Chinese in Changchun, and um, universally, you seem to get the same um, condemnation there as you get elsewhere in uh, the Northeast, uh, that the Japanese were barbarians, um, uh, Japanese devils did this, they did that. And you agree, because they there were awful things done by um, aspects of the Japanese army, elements of the Japanese army. And then you start to, I start to ask them about the, uh, the built environment. And I would often get um, statements like, well, yeah, they did build some good buildings and they tend to last longer than what was built by the, the Chinese uh, after 1945. Uh, it tended to be darker as well because they had smaller windows and things like that. Uh, so you do get a, a kind of a more ambivalent view of if you can steer the conversation in that direction. And, and in the post-war era, when the Japanese have, have gone back to China, they they refuse to pay pay any indemnity, but 
in order to facilitate better relations, there's been lots of Japanese overseas investment in China, particularly in infrastructure uh, in terms of water supply systems and, 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 and transportation, these kinds of things, um, in order to try and you know, reestablish some kind of relationship. Thank you for answering that. And there's one more question I'm kind of curious about is, um, do you also see a, um, a current kind of interest in the region in Northeast China um, by um, the Japanese government or by, say, private uh, companies or corporations nowadays? By the Japanese government, I'd say no, unless you count the um, in- encouragement of this kind of overseas uh, investment strategies. Uh, amongst academics and, and the populace, though, yeah, if you go to any Japanese bookstore, um, there's you go to the history section, there's uh, always a section on, on Manchuria, um, or so it seems. Uh, a lot of it, of course, is celebratory or, or uh, reminiscent um, of how things used to be uh, and celebrating Montetsu and things like that. Um, occasionally, there's um, NHK documentaries that talk about this era. But there's also been a kind of a surge in publications uh, since 2000. Um, there's been a couple of books and discussions and journals that become books. And there's even been some joint academic uh, publications by Chinese and Japanese um, scholars that uh, have been exploring this, this, the, this history. So, yeah, there, there is interest uh, amongst academics and in some, some of the population um, not by the government that I'm aware of. Thank you. Well, uh, we've come to about 50 minutes already. Um, I think we've taken up a lot of your time, and I really had a great time reading your book. Um, but before we let you go, we have the final question uh, for our you know, um, channel is, can you maybe tell us a little bit about some of the projects that you're working on right now? Well, this year, I actually have a sabbatical that started the first of the month. And uh, I had planned to go back to um, Japan and, and perhaps elsewhere in Asia to do some research because I, I finished up um, several projects in the last few years and I wanted to get some new material. Um, that's obviously not happening. Uh, so instead, I'm going to focus on uh, one aspect of the, of the book, which is to further explore the, um, uh, the, the medical uh, aspects because um, sanitation, hygiene, um, were big concerns of the Japanese and in the era of COVID that uh, makes uh, a sense to revisit the, what I have here on, on the treaty port and, and look at the, um, um, the medical concerns of the treaty port. And I'm, I'm trying to develop an article uh, on that right now. Very interesting. Um, well, thank you for sharing that with us. And um, I guess we can let you go. Um, and thank you so much for taking your time to do this, to do the recording with us. And um, I look forward to your article and maybe your uh, books coming out soon. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. <laughs>